Welcome to Season of the Bitch, the only podcast that is totally down to come over and build a blanket fort with you. Mm-hmm. On today's show, we have Hope, Ambria, Lindsay, and Kellen. Yay! <laughs> so, one of the coolest things about doing this podcast has been the conversations we've had with listeners. And we love y'all so much that we thought we'd devote a whole show to you. So, we'll be taking questions, comments from Twitter and email, and we'll take some calls during today's show, too. Yeah! I'm excited to talk to you guys. <laughs> it's going to be sweet. Uh, the sun actually came out in Chicago today. Ooh. So, um, you know, I had some drinks last night, but I still feel amazing. And I went for a little walk. That sounds awesome, Ambria. Um, it looks like we had a question on Twitter from Andy Sauce 38 MBA, who wants to know <laughs> if he should make French or Italian bread. Make? He makes bread? He says he's about to make it, like, and he wanted to know which type he... I hope we're gendering this person, Andy Sauce, 38 MBA, correctly. True. I don't believe this. I I don't... (laughs) You don't believe (laughs) that he has an MBA? You're telling me that somebody just gets up on Sunday and makes bread. I... No. I don't buy it. (laughs) No. Well, in the off chance that Andy Sauce is getting up on a Sunday morning and baking bread. I know Lindsay had an opinion, which yeah, is... Yeah, it should be French bread. French bread. Um, so Andy Sauce, bread. when you hear this on Friday or Thursday, if you are a Patreon subscriber, which you should be at this point, honestly, I hope this information is useful to you. What is yeah, the Italian difference? bread is fascist and French bread seems like a slap in the face to Marie Antoinette. So that's where my opinion comes from. Love it. <laughs> <laughs> What is the difference, other than fascism, between Italian and French bread? <laughs> At the risk of sounding very intelligent, I have to ask this question. I have no idea. The, sh- the shapes are different, but there's also like a lot of different bread types that are French bread and Italian bread. Like ciabatta is technically Italian bread, but usually in a grocery store, if you buy Italian bread in air quotes, it's like the the big wide loaf. So I don't know. This They're really, really long, complicated. Thin one? I, I feel like I call I feel like I call that bread French bread or Italian bread, just like depending on my mood. Yeah, I feel like Italian bread has garlic. It's and that's bread. the only difference. Like <laughs> in which case, make Italian bread. Is Italian bread hard, uh, softer? That's my conception based exclusively on going to uh potbellies for subs. That Italian you know bread what is I... soft and French bread has like a hard shell. Oh. Okay, you know what? I'm glad I asked this question because it's clear that none of you know either. God. All right, Andy, this is ontology. Uh, all over again. Making, send it to us. Like, send us some of the bread, some of each kind. Make both. Send it yeah. to us, and then we'll tell you what kind you should make the third time you make bread, yeah. since you're clearly going to be making French this time, Italian next time, and then our preference the third time. Guys, <laughs> we have another uh, a question that's come in from Twitter. Garbage Hime, which is the Twitter handle, asks, how do you deal with organizing stagnation? 
I feel like my work is going too slow. Am I being impatient or is there something I could be doing to speed up the revolution? In parentheses, LOL. Let me just say garbage hime, which I believe is a Japanese word, is she, her. And I think this is just proof that women ask better questions than MBAs. (laughs) (laughs) Ones that are men presenting, at least. What do we think, guys? Masculine-sounding Twitter handles. (laughs) Um, I, you know, I'm wondering what she means by slow. Um, Are people slow to respond? You know, that's pretty typical. Is it that people in general are not showing a lot of interest in what she's working on? That's what I'm going to guess she's talking about. I guess my tip would probably be to make time for fun. The people that you call on the most, what do you do with them to build your relationship in a fun way? You know, do you only contact them about really serious, annoying, you know, heavy things? Or do you also go out and get drinks with them and talk about their dogs and, you know, their partner who said something mean to them and they're mad about it? You know, I I think it's important to make the relationships you have with people you're organizing with deep and sometimes fun. I don't, I you know, if maybe you're already doing that, but it might be a tip. See, I read this question and interpreted it as... Uh feeling like not being able to see change happening. So where mm-hmm. somebody's um doing a lot of organizing and just feeling sort of like, man, we're doing all this work and we're not seeing a lot of wins. That's kind of how I interpret that. And we talked about this a little bit in our organizing episode, actually, but the, just the importance of acknowledging where you have had successes. Um, Cause I think sometimes that gets lost in organizing. Cause we see like the more you learn, the more you see how far there is to go. Mm-hmm. Well said. I think I interpreted it sort of close to what Hope was saying, which, yeah, I totally agree. And and I think that part of the frustration, uh, the inherent to being on the left is that things never move as quickly as you'd like. Um, Maybe that's like a life frustration, but I definitely don't feel that way about like my work, which moves a lot more quickly than I might like sometimes. I think that, yeah, just like, what's the term that I've been learning about recently? Radical acceptance being like, yep, Mm -hmm. this is the way that it is. I'm going to keep trying and plugging away. And like, we may not see the change that I want, but like, we'll see a change. And like, I can be really integral to making that happen and feeling okay about that and not getting down on yourself or down on others when we don't, you know, schedule the revolution for next Sunday or whatever. (laughs) Totally. Mm. So now we need to call Jen in. Okay, I just dialed her. Cool. Awesome. Hello. Hi. Hello. Is this Jen? Yeah. Oh, hi. Yes, this is Season (laughs) of the Bitch. How are you? I'm good. How are you doing? We're doing well, thanks. Yeah, welcome. Welcome to the podcast. (laughs) Oh, (laughs) I definitely got my times wrong. (laughs) Oh, no. I thought you were calling me later in the day. I well, didn't think a you sounded surprise, weird then. surprise. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe someday we'll do a podcast episode where we just call people at random times. <laughs> Cold call. Nice <laughs> oh, I love you that. know, it would certainly be entertaining. <laughs> <laughs> Is this an okay time for us to talk with you for just a few minutes? Yeah, absolutely. Awesome. Thank you so much for being flexible. 
So we, we really appreciated you sending us a message and are so happy to have you on the show now. Did you have a question or something you wanted to say? Um, I guess that my big question is sort of an advice thing, but not really, because I just got into a PhD program Woo, and I've been really active with, thank you. I've been really active with DSA. So I'm just wondering, like, how do y'all take care of yourselves and also do organizing work and also do grad school and also do a podcast? Like, <laughs> what does that look like for you? Uh, oh, I don't. <laughs> no. Yeah. If, if you do, if you can, like, what, how do you manage? I, so I, yeah, it is a great question. This is Kellen. So I'm, I'm uh, in a PhD program right now. And I would say the first thing, like the first piece of advice and most important piece of advice I have is to just be kind to yourself. I had an incredibly difficult first semester of grad school, like a lot of imposter syndrome, like tear my, my anxiety was at like a 10 pretty much constantly. It was, it was like really, really bad. And I didn't, I wasn't, I wasn't in the DSA at that point, but if I had been like, there's no way that I would have been able to like do much of anything. And so sort of going into this new phase of your life with an understanding that like things are going to change. And a lot of people have a much better experience with grad school than I, I mean, I'm really happy now, (laughs) but like I was not at the beginning. Um, And like my first semester was seriously considering dropping out. So sort of acknowledging that this might be a really big change. It might not, but it might be a really big adjustment that's going to like make it harder for you to do maybe some of the stuff that you want to do. Like recognizing that fact being like okay that's fine my main priority right now is just getting accustomed to like this new job that I have and all of the new like requirements that it presents and then you know letting people in the DSA maybe you know letting your friends know whatever it is like I may not be as available this semester as I used to be and then you'll figure Mm -hmm. it out like that's just what happens. You figure it out. And once you've kind of got down what you need to know to like survive in grad school, you can go back to doing the stuff that you love outside of grad school. And I think just like keeping in mind that that's, there's this, you know, a phase of like recalibration that has to happen and not getting mad at yourself for taking that time, not getting too frustrated with, you know, with the phase while you're in the phase um, is the best way to stay sane because all of every part of grad school is just like conspiring to make you crazy. Um, so trying to be aware of how you're feeling and why you're feeling that way and then being like, this is okay and it, it will pass. Okay. Yeah, I agree with Kellen. I um, I actually have not been to a DSA meeting this year. I this is I've this is the first episode in five episodes that I've been on just because I've been so bogged down with school and I've had, um, you know, a bunch of drama in my personal life. And I just, I couldn't handle everything. Like I had my responsibilities and I consider, I consider school my priority because of course, like it's going to put me in the position that I need to be in for the rest of my life. And also because it's the one thing that I'm shelling out a whole lot of money for. So it's like, yeah, I have to prioritize it. And then just staying sane, like so school and my mental health had to come before organizing and before the podcast. And I trust the other members of DSA and I trust everybody on this podcast to, you know, keep it going when I can't. Um, so it's just, I think a lot of it is knowing 
what your limits are, knowing what your priorities are, and then trusting the people in your community to pick up your slack when you just, you can't take any more responsibility than you have. So you can't always do it all, but (laughs) just surround yourself with good people. Yeah, Yeah. like Hope is saying about priorities, like, I think on some days, like, and this is sort of much more in the moment kind of advice, like, sort of, I, I don't know how you are, but I tend to get kind of scattered, like, I'll do, like, you know, I'll start writing something that I'm working on, and then I'll, like, go in the kitchen and start washing dishes, and then I'll be like, you know what, Uh, I want to hear that, that one song, you know, and I just like running around the house Mm -hmm. doing a million different things. I think sometimes I just have to stop and be like, okay, like, what things do I have to get done today? And what things would be nice to get done and make sure that I'm doing the things that have to get done. Like, Mm -hmm. sometimes I feel moved to like, do something related to this podcast. And then I have to take a step back and be like, well, that's not the most important thing for today. So unfortunately, I need to put my energy somewhere else. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I would agree with that. Um, and the other last thing I'll add, this is hope, is that my favorite tip and trick is just saying the word no with no explanation. Tips it's so fun. And tricks. Um, tips, tips, and tricks. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I feel like a toddler sometimes, you know, when they first learn how to say no, like a two-year-old or three-year-old just says like, no, all the time. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And it was really fun learning that you don't always have to explain. Somebody can say, can you do this thing? And you can just say no. And once I learned that, my life got way simpler. (laughs) Yeah, it sounds, it sounds easy. It's a little bit hard and weird at first, but you know, you don't, there are some people you do owe explanations for things, but a lot of the time you can just say no, and it makes things much easier if you're direct about that too. Because um, there's nothing worse than somebody who like agrees to do a bunch of things and then can't actually follow through. So, you know, mm-hmm. it kind of does everybody a benefit if you just say no up front. Mm-hmm. Okay. All One right. other awesome. random thank thing. You. Oh, oh, thanks so much. Yeah. No, that's fine. Um, <laughs> thank you so much for calling and we really appreciate it. And thank you for listening. Yeah, yeah thanks, absolutely. I'm a huge fan. Please keep doing what you're doing if you can. Good luck with grad school. Good luck. (laughs) Bye. Bye. That was awesome, guys. Yeah. Good job. Honestly, my my idea, like my answer was basically (laughs) ripped from you. It was because my well-being at this point has is due in large part to just not feeling obligated to explain why I'm saying no. So it was your idea. I also did love, Lindsay, what you said about, like, trusting other people. And I think as someone who has traditionally been a little bit of a control freak, mm-hmm. um, I think learning to, like, it, it's weird, but it's a little egotistical to feel like nobody else can, like, keep things going. Right. Mm-hmm. And so, like, learning to trust other people is is really important. And, like, you know, I it's it's a blessing to me to feel like I don't have to be trying to deal with the podcast constantly because we Mm -hmm. all contribute to it and like I trust everybody that that we're all in it and invested yeah that's great I'm a terrible delegator I also have a really hard time like letting go of things that I'm partially responsible for or that like reflect on me in any way but that's like I don't know I just so in school and in work I'm like I know what I'm doing here like I have a better idea of how to do things than other people 
do with regard to the things that are my responsibilities. But with you guys, I feel like every single one of you is like excellent at what you do. And I'm very comfortable with your like stepping into my shoes when I have to step back. Like for once in my life with you guys, I'm actually comfortable not taking responsibility for every, every little Mm -hmm. thing or just feeling like feeling confident that you won't drop the ball. I hate group projects at school because, I I mean, I'm not confident that that my classmates won't drop the ball, but yeah. I hope they don't listen to this podcast. (laughs) Right? Uh, (laughs) I mean, it it has nothing to do with like how how good they are at what they do. It's just like, if my grade is dependent upon it, I don't know. There's like an objective metric for like how I'll be evaluated on it. And if that. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. Yeah, if that depends on other people, then, like, I'm really uncomfortable letting go of the reins. But there is no objective metric here, and I just, like, I trust every single one of you. Thanks <laughs> to the power of having a flat structure, like, having doing things cooperatively, because there's no, like, podcast boss who's going to be like, Ambria, why didn't you guys get the new merch up? You might, you might, like, lose something significant here. Or, you know, there's not, there's nobody we're just evaluating ourselves. And I think that speaks to the power of the kind of cooperative structure. Yes. Mm-hmm. Do we need to call that person? Yeah. Perfect. <laughs> so you live in a small Vermont town. And the last thing I heard is that, well, that's about the last that I heard. <laughs> I heard you say you were working in sexual assault prevention. I, yeah, I do sexual assault prevention, education, advocacy at a small liberal arts college in Vermont. That's amazing. Yes. So you had a, a comment about restorative justice, right? Yeah. So I listened to the transformative justice episode, and I wanted to add in a little bit about my experience doing restorative justice for the last six years at the Community Justice Center in Brattleboro, Vermont. I volunteer in their prisoner reentry program called COSA, which stands for Circle of Support and Accountability. And it's focused on a team of volunteers who um, help a formerly incarcerated person reintegrate into the community after an, a period of time being incarcerated. So it's a lot of helping someone find a job, find housing, get on Social Security if they need it, that kind of stuff. Um, and we work with this person for 52 hours a year. That's awesome. And yeah, thank you for your work, by the way. (laughs) Thank you. Yeah, it's, it's really interesting. And I think really important in terms of rethinking about crime in a different way, basically, in terms of thinking about it as a community issue, as opposed to uh, harm done to the state, which is really what the uh, prison industrial complex is built on, when in fact, it's really can be handled uh, on a community issue or a community um, side. <laughs> and one of the things your your guest, Kristen, mentioned on the episode was that um, it, restorative justice really relies on the prison industrial complex being a thing, which I would agree with. We help people who are formerly incarcerated and who have committed crimes and have spent a period of time like as wards of the state. And actually in Vermont, they're, um, they're on furlough, which means they're in the community, but part of the Department of Corrections as well. They're essentially still wards of the state because they're not on probation or parole. And in terms of like answering the question like of what now, like what would justice look like outside of this kind of broken system? I would say 
in my experience, it would be a combination of restorative justice with an eye towards health justice, which is looking at all of the root causes of what causes um, all the root causes of crime in a community and addressing those from like a healthcare perspective. And then if someone does commit harm, circling around them and providing support and accountability. A lot of the people I've worked with were incarcerated because of mental health issues or addiction. And that was sort of like very integral to like how their crime happened. And so I see like from a prevention standpoint, which is a lot of where my like brain is focused because of my work, if we had healthcare that was freely available to people and people, no matter what, had access to what they needed, some of those issues might have been addressed before any harm had happened in the community or to them and before, you know, possibly uh, had prevented crime from happening in the first place. So that's sort of what I was, my response to that, to some of the points that were brought up in that episode. Thanks for sharing. We really appreciate yeah, that. That's that. Yeah, that was like no extremely problem. well thought out and, and every, yeah, that was awesome. Yeah, Thank we you. really appreciate it. It's great to get feedback like that where we learn something and I think it enriches the whole conversation. Yeah, I think including yeah, people um, who actually work within that kind of, you know, system, just having feedback that actually reflects the lived experience of working. Yeah, you said um, the program that you work with is with a community justice center. Do you want to say more about what that center is? Sure. The Brattleboro Community Justice Center is offender-focused restorative justice programs. So their two main programs are COSA, which is where I volunteer, and um, they do reparative panels, which are is a shorter-term program where like a team of volunteers addresses harm that's been committed in the community um, where someone hasn't gone to jail. It's kind of an alternative to a fine or jail time. So it can be anything from like vandalism to a domestic violence or interpersonal violence crime. And they meet with a panel for once a month for three months, basically thinking about how did this happen? Who was affected? And how do you make amends in that context? And I haven't really participated in any panels, but that is one of their bigger programs that can also include like the victim of a crime coming in and having that relationship mediated by the panel or by the community justice center. So it's really offender focused, which is a valid criticism. And there's a community justice center in Burlington, Vermont, I think that focuses on parallel justice, which is victim focused and is largely geared towards getting reparations for victims of crime. Yeah, we could do more to sort of balance things. That's really interesting. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Yeah. Thank you so much for making the time to call in. It was really nice to talk with you, Robin. Yeah, it was nice to talk to you too. Thank you so much. Bye. 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 Stay, Bye. stay safe Bye. in that ice storm. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> Bye. We have a, a question that's coming in from Twitter from Tanya of the Trillbillies. Um, hey. A longtime friend of the show. She wants to know, when and where is the next live show? The Coven is so strong when you're all together. And she also asks, what are the Coven's plans for the spring equinox? Because winter is getting old as fuck. (laughs) I love you, Tanya. We love you, Tanya. We love you, Tanya. That's our answer. (laughs) 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 So far, we're planning on uh, New York. 
sometime in the spring. Do not have a date yet, but yeah, we're going to switch it up in terms of venue this time. So that'll be exciting. Kevin goes to New York, the next Mary Kate and Ashley movie. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> I for one hope we all ride around on pastel colored mopeds clinging to attractive men. Absolutely. All right. <laughs> Absolutely. That was Passport to Paris, for the record. We will hire attractive men to cling to. (laughs) (laughs) I'm very into it. (laughs) And those are also our plans for the spring equinox. Not going to New York specifically as a group, but the riding around on pastel-covered colored mopeds. And I have to say, like, to her point about winter getting old AF, it's actually, as Ambria said, it's pretty nice in Chicago today, particularly for winter. So I feel like even though we've had a lot of snow, I'm not as pissed off at winter as I usually am. <laughs> oh, man. I was feeling it last week. Yeah. Uh, this week is warmer. I don't know, with all the snow and stuff, I was like, I was like a grumpy person in a cartoon. I was like, this is dumb. I'm done with it. I, I was like getting in my car, like kicking things like <laughs> <laughs> I might be yeah. exaggerating a little, but I felt I felt like that inside. There are definitely like one or two points in the Chicago winter where I'm like, no one should live here. Why does anyone live here? <laughs> Evacuate. <Some> Evacuate. <laughs> yeah. You I made a bad like, choice. What stupid fucking people came here uh, from somewhere else and said, yeah, we'll stop here. Like, no, it's how it's built on absurdity. yeah we had some days here in like the 30s and i was like this is ridiculous this is stupid this is way too cold and now it's now it's 75 degrees in february it'll be like 115 degrees all summer i'm sure of it but right now i miss the south i'll say that yeah all right so we have another call on deck ringing in now hello ravi hi hi i can hear you now Hi, hello. Hello, hello, comrades. Hello, good morning. <laughs> We've been instructed by Laura to tell you that she misses you. Oh, I miss her too. <laughs> so, where are you calling from today? I am calling from. My living room slash sewing studio here in very not sunny New York City. All right. Welcome. (laughs) Uh, So what would you like to talk with us about today? So, you know, I've been thinking about I've been thinking a lot about production and making things lately. I actually always think about that because I do make a lot of stuff. Um, I mostly make my own clothes and it's a both a like really great way to have gorgeous clothes, but also it's very meditative and I'm a big fan of crafting as like mm-hmm. self-care and all of that. And so I was thinking maybe we could talk a little bit about production and like sites of production as like sites of exploitation, but also liberation. So I'm thinking like any kind of a workplace is a place where we are both exploited, but can also potentially fight for our liberation. Mm-hmm. And you know, one of the things that I spend a lot of time thinking about is alienation and how capitalism and patriarchy and white supremacy really condition us to interact in really bad ways or really unproductive or harmful ways. And 
I'm trying to think through right now in DSA spaces. There are a million different tangents one can go on with this, but thinking about DSA spaces and what are we making together as a community? What are we producing? How are we reproducing bad stuff? How are we making new things? And how to how to do that in a way that's outward facing? Because I think a lot of like feminist collectives and reading groups or even just smaller, smaller sort of formations I've been part of, we thought about it in like intentional ways that work for the people in the room at that moment. But what do you do when your community is constantly changing because new people are coming in? So it's sort of like a right now, it's like a mishmash of those kinds of things. So I'm curious because like we're all in different chapters. So I'm, I'm wondering if there's anything in there that maybe resonates with you guys about what what's happening in your chapters, how you guys are trying to like reach out to new communities and create like productive, uh, positive spaces? Yeah, that's a great question. I don't know how well this addresses the question. I'm hoping it does. <laughs> <laughs> One thing that I've really appreciated about my work with the DSA lately is mm. very well thought out, carefully managed coalition building. Um, mm-hmm. And I think sort of um, the DSA, we have a very strong sort of like culture of debate, um, which Mm -hmm. I think is fantastic. But I think one way I've been pleased that, you know, we've been showing up is is not in that way, right? We have that in our own organization and the Mm -hmm. DSA. And I think, you know, going out and supporting, for example, you know, people of color in Chicago who have been fighting school closings, going and supporting them in that work and being just the support and um, right. not really taking ownership of it. Right. You know what I mean? And letting, letting mm-hmm. the people that have already been doing this work have that ownership. I, I don't know how related that is to your question, but for yeah. some reason it made me think of that, like how, how we not only build things for ourselves, but like mm-hmm. how we can carefully mediate our relationships with other organizations and people outside of our organization in general. Yeah, that's exactly what I'm what I'm like working through myself. Very much so. How do we make things in different contexts? Mm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree with Ambria. I'm not gonna add too much to this, um, except to say that like I think it's so important to be a reliable partner um, mm-hmm. when you're you know joining up with people who have been doing the work in whatever area for a long time, like showing up, you know, if it's a demonstration, like be the bodies that they need, you know, lend right. visibility to what other community groups, sometimes, you know, sort of single issue community groups are doing. Mm-hmm. And like, just, I think for us to be consistent and thoughtful in the way that yeah. we approach people who, you know, for whatever reason are not like, DSA members, but are doing work that we feel is compatible with what we're doing in our end goals. I think that's a really important step. You know what, this connects. Oh, I'm sorry, Mm -hmm. go ahead. No, I was just going to say like something that that occurs to me in the, in like what you guys are talking about was like the single issue, like so many groups out there are single issue. And one of my hopes for DSA as we evolve, I don't think very many of us are there yet, but over time that we can start 
sort of being the links between these groups to create to create movements that that work across issues, um, bringing that like bringing together of all of those kinds of ingredients, I think is really important. I feel like one of the things that DSA has going for it, though, is that even now is that a lot of a lot of our internal culture, there's stuff that's not great, but a lot of it is about is very joyful for me. Um, at least I my branch meeting was this past Thursday and between the flu and family obligations, it's been a few months since I was in a room with like 120 other socialists. And it's such a like powerfully generative, idea generating, enthusiasm generating, joy making kind of a kind of a space that yeah, it, it's really interesting to see how we're able to sort of use this, this experience together to, to make something really very different, I think, from how a lot of socialist organizations in the past have been, where it's been like super serious and like, you know, we can actually do both. We can actually do really serious work and be really happy and be really joyful. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Because otherwise, totally. life is just very depressing under capitalism, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, and so that it's very important to be like, to be making joy in our lives. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, it's another thing sort of on my mind right now. I think that's something that um, particularly new activists can feel kind of guilty about because it doesn't feel like work. Um, (laughs) You know, you feel like, oh, we should be like doing this just like awful in the trenches grinding work because there's so much to do. And how can I be experiencing joy when I know other people are suffering and I see people go through that when they're new to it? So. You know, yeah. Ravi said a really good example, and we can all do a better job of um, making sure we communicate that to other people. This is important work, too. You should have, yeah. this should be joyful. This should make people feel good because there is, that's because there's so much pain. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 That's definitely, uh, I'm very lucky in my branch. I always say that. But I think many of us have that experience of DSA. What keeps us coming back? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I feel like we come, the way the DSA has sort of, blossomed like I feel like we come to it as whole people um Mm -hmm. and I feel like the friendships I've built in the DSA are like real friendships um Mm -hmm. real relationships you know we've talked in the past about that word comrade um Mm -hmm. as being someone that you encounter not only as like a full human being that you're connected to but somebody that you're doing work with at the Mm -hmm. same time um yeah to the extent that like you might even start to get to know people's families and their partners Mm -hmm. and things like that. But I think something we were saying before about self-care with another caller, Mm -hmm. it's just making me think of, you know, Hope told us about how you can just say no without giving an explanation and how liberating that is. But I think in the world of organizing, that's not only self-care. I think, um, you know, coming to other people that we're working with, whether they be in mm-hmm. our organization or in other organizations, being genuine about like what we can feasibly offer is mm-hmm. so important, like for serving them as well mm-hmm. and being, as uh, Kellen said, reliable partners, right? right? Like, you yeah. know, saying yes only when you feel, you know, confident that you can make that commitment. 
Um, and I think uh, to give a shout out to Kenzo Shibata here in Chicago, yeah. who asked you know, us a he, question, by the way, which we will get oh, to. Oh, he did? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm reminded, you know, he talks a lot. He's talked, he's gotten up on his soapbox several times about how, you know, if an organizer asks you to do something and you can't, like, please say no. Like, please yeah, say oh, no. God, yeah, Don't tell me no. you're going to come if you're not, you know, because yeah. I'm telling somebody else that I'm bringing a certain amount of people. And if I tell them I'm going to show up with 20 people and three people show up, man, I'm going to have egg on my face. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, something I often think about our coalition work that you were you, you two were referring to as apprenticeship for many of us, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. that we, there's so much to learn from ongoing struggles. There's so much to learn from the socialist past. There's so much to learn from existing socialist organizations in other countries, occasionally even socialist organizations in this country. But there is, like, DSA is in a period of apprenticeship. You know, we're in a mm-hmm. period of learning. And because learning requires a willingness to potentially not do so well on your first test, like on your mm-hmm. midterm, I think for some people saying no or saying we're not ready, like, it feels mm-hmm. like you're failing. And one thing that I think, again, socialism has going for it is that we have an analysis that extends beyond the current moment, right? Like, mm-hmm. if Bernie Sanders gets elected president in, you know, 2020, it doesn't matter, man. We're going to have so much fucking work to do, right? Mm-hmm. Like, there's not, there's sort of a longer view. And so I, mm-hmm. I try really hard. And again, the analogy of either learning a language or learning something which for me was sewing. I learned to knit when I was really little, but learning to sew as an adult, dude, I made some really like hideous, badly constructed things and (laughs) going through, no, seriously. Right. Like I don't know how to do a pleat and Mm -hmm. I'm still struggling with how to like install zippers and I hit, you know, buttons. I can't even make start with buttons. Like it's just my Waterloo. And (laughs) so the experience of like being ignorant and bad at something (laughs) Mm-hmm. is really good for you because I think yeah. our world is a very high stakes world increasingly. And, mm-hmm. you know, I'm a good 10, 15 years older than a lot of people in DSA. And it is really true. Like it's not, it's not some like, Oh, millennial self pity thing. Like life is, has been much more high stakes for people who are 10 to 15 years younger than I am in terms of their education, in terms of all sorts of things, the incredibly like, high stakes, one failure, and you're dead for life kind of life that a lot of poor and working mm-hmm. class people in this country have always lived has really come up into the middle class in a way that's incredibly, was incredibly fast and like really shocking for a lot of people. And so mm-hmm. a lot of us tend to be really scared of failure because it is so damaging. And I feel like one thing that GSA has offered me and I hope is part of our culture whenever possible is that we can say no to things. We can make an honest assessment and be like, yeah, I don't think I can do that properly. I don't think I mm-hmm. can be the person that this coalition partner needs us to be. And that's okay. Like, I'm still learning. I'm allowed to be really bad at zippers. It's okay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you just you crafted know, I mean, a really I, excellent metaphor for praxis. Yeah. <laughs> you right. crafted it. Oh, get yeah. it? There we go. I get yeah, it. Hard, Good hard, one. Hard. Nice. <laughs> yeah. I want a promotion for that. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Thank you so thank much. Thank you for, so much for calling. Yeah. <laughs> yeah thank you. Well, we you all know that I'm a huge, huge fan of your podcast. I really, I, I'm not a podcast person. I tried to be a podcast person, but so in all honesty, this one is 
Season of the Bitch is probably the only one that I actually listen to regularly. I really, really enjoy it. So thank you so much for, for inviting me on. Yeah, of course. Uh, thank you so much for coming. It was a pleasure. Absolutely. And we'll be, we're doing our next live show in New York, so hopefully we will see you there. Oh, my God. That's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> Very exciting. Awesome. Thanks so much, Ravi. Right. Thank All you. Right, bye. Bye-bye. See you around. Bye. Bye. All right, so we have another Twitter question from an anonymous user. Um, Ooh. Yes. So she says, my experience with sexism in DSA is that woke dudes, quote unquote, woke dudes just flat out ignore her. Um, she gives some examples and she goes so far as to say that she sees her work constantly being erased and it makes her want to leave DSA, even though she doesn't think there's really a better option out there. So her question is, how do you deal with sexism in your organizing work, especially like insidious sexism where dudes think they're doing fine because they're not like sexually harassing you or anything? I, you know what, supporting each other as women, I think we've talked about wanting to talk about this more Mm -hmm. um, Mm -hmm. on the air because we talk a lot about it between ourselves, which is like tactics for supporting other women publicly Mm -hmm. and sort of when women are being talked over you know, jumping in as another woman to sort of not really call out the behavior, but call attention to it, I guess I should say, and be like, hey, I think, you know, I think Laura was saying something. Right. Redirect uh, focus, kind of. Yeah, I want to hear, I, 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 she didn't quite finish what she was saying, and I wanted to hear what she was going to say, so maybe we can backtrack. You know, saying things mm-hmm. like that, I, I and that's hard because she's going to have to, she's going to have to build, build that with other women. Right. Of course, in a in an ideal world, men would take responsibility for calling out that behavior. But um, that's probably not going to happen until women build the culture for it. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. And yeah. that's that's more work, unfortunately, you know, like behind yeah. the scenes kind of work that needs to be done. And I, yeah, I totally agree with Ambria that like one thing that that you can do is like talk to women, talk to non-binary comrades you know, who are probably experiencing the same thing and Mm -hmm. say, you know, I've been having this problem. Have you been having this problem? What are some ways that we can build each other up? And also, I think just like talking in sort of group settings, bringing up at, you know, meetings or whatever, thinking like being explicit about the kind of labor that's being done, you know, saying things like, well, why is it that like women are always the ones that are preparing food? Mm-hmm. you know, this stuff doesn't come from nowhere, you know, let's take a moment to acknowledge the labor that these two women or whatever have done, and being very explicit and sort of normalizing a culture within like a chapter where the mm-hmm. sort of reproductive labor of members is recognized, particularly when it applies, you know, is helping out an entire group. Mm-hmm. Um, and just making making the invisible visible, I think, can be really, really important in just getting men to recognize things that they tend to take for granted. Yeah, yeah I would I, definitely agree with that. I think uh, that it's ingrained that it's really hard, sometimes even for quote unquote, woke dudes, to catch themselves doing stuff like that. I'm personally a really big fan of calling things out in the moment where possible. And if you feel comfortable, it just tends to be the most effective. Like if you're at a meeting and somebody's not giving you credit for something you did to ask for permission to, you know, jump into the meeting and just say, I just want to say that I'm the one who organized that. And, you know, 
kind of like pointing it out at the time, I've found to be the most effective way to get people to see their own behavior a little bit more clearly. But I know that's not always easy. It's so scary. Like, we, we can just acknowledge that. Like, I, I still have a super hard time at 30 years old being like, hey, I feel like, you know, you're not recognizing my contribution. And it might be because you're a guy and I'm I'm not. Mm-hmm. I still have really a lot of trouble doing that. Mm-hmm. Something that I struggle with is um, when it is like, you know, collective work and everybody's supposed to be doing it cooperatively, I have a hard time knowing if it is appropriate for me to take credit for something that was my idea or something that I did. And um, I'm wondering if any of you has experience with that. Like, when do you know that it's appropriate to say, yeah, I think it's, you know, great that you like this idea. That was my idea. And I, you know, I feel valued and I feel appreciated because you think it's good. I don't know. It just seems to me, it seems like centering myself in a place that's not necessarily supposed to be focused on any individual. So have any of you dealt with that specifically? I mean, women worry about that. And that's why women don't get credit for things. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) And I think that's a wonderful thing about us, right? I, and so I'm not saying it's wrong. It's just, I think giving yourself or giving women credit for things Um, is not necessarily going to be at the detriment of other people. And I find that a good way to do this, um, if you feel concerned about it, is like taking credit for certain aspects of a group project and then also doling out credit to other people and be like, and also I really Mm -hmm. appreciate, you know, so-and-so who did this other thing, who contributed to this. I didn't do that alone. Like we can give collective credit while also like acknowledging the individual roles that people played. Brilliant. Cool. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. Have we made our male guest wait long enough? (laughs) (laughs) Just keep joking and the pain will go away. Hello? Hi! Hi, everyone. Welcome to Season of the Bitch. Wow, thank you so much for having me. What's your name? Where are you calling from? Yeah, uh, my name is Zach. I'm calling from D.C. Cool. We're excited to have you. Are you with the government? (laughs) I I am not with the government. Are you with (laughs) I'm hmm. not a Fed. <laughs> Hello, FBI. Welcome. I mean, I'm sure they're here. <laughs> there's there's an FBI agent sweating right now. So. <laughs> <laughs> they're getting close. <laughs> oh, man. So what did you want to talk to us about? Yeah, so I, I guess uh, I listened to your episode a few weeks back about kind of jargon and leftist organizing spaces. Mm-hmm. And I thought it was a really great episode. And one thing that I kind of came out of it thinking is that it's kind of funny that I think at the base of it all, there's a lot of different definitions of what people mean by leftism or socialism. And even getting a handle on that kind of basis is really difficult. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think that's definitely true. Yeah. Um, do you have a question uh, about how we define socialism, like ourselves or yeah, what definition I think it, you'd like to proffer? Well, I can tell you what, like, definition that I can proffer after, like, sort of um, polling people on Twitter a little bit about this, which was <laughs> people, people got back to me saying that they thought the real thing was about, you know, social ownership of uh, the means of production, which is a pretty classical definition, I think, but mm-hmm. leaves a lot of details unfilled. So I'd be curious as to what you guys are thinking as far as, you know, if you had to give a definition of who counts. Not banks. Not banks is a good, good start. <laughs> yeah, I guess. 
Yeah, it's it's weird because it is so many things. Like, there's so many ways we could have socialism, and I don't feel like I, I think it's less about once you get into the nitty gritty of it like this. It's less about like what can be defined as socialism, and more about like what do we think is a good idea or a good strategy for achieving socialism, right? So there's like socialist values, and then there's like what practices do we consider to be socialist. It's just so complicated. <laughs> yeah, so I would say a lot of the things, a lot of different definitions and a lot of different practices could, you know, be socialism, even if they're contradictory, because there's a lot of disagreement over, like, how we're going to achieve those things. Mm-hmm. I, I guess, do you see, like, a unifying set of goals that you would at least put behind all that, even if there's a lot of definitions of, like, or a lot of differences on the methods or kind of medium-term things do you see or like even the values that you mentioned for me i think ensuring everybody basic fundamental human rights Mm -hmm. uh is like the ultimate goal just making sure everybody has what they need in order to survive and like once we've established that we can figure out who gets like the you know major luxury items (laughs) we're not there yet i'm not really willing to argue about who deserves to own a yacht until we've guaranteed you know everybody health care and housing and food but yeah just making sure that everybody has has the means to continue to survive yeah i'm not like a big theory person which i know is like a very unpopular thing to say probably there are probably like 40 men who are just turning off their radios right now um <laughs> But my my I'm listening to this on the radio. They're they're uh, iPhones, whatever. Y'all know what I mean. Um, <laughs> I sort of feel like there's so much to be done that, like, for me, spending too much of my mental energy thinking about like the precise definition of socialism beyond like social ownership of the means of production, which is the way that I would define it as well, sort of a classical Marxist thing is doesn't like lead me to a productive place personally I, I understand why people want to do that but for me I'm much more concerned about like working towards the goals that Lindsay just sort of outlined on a political level um, and using the term political in, in sort of a wide way but guaranteeing housing education healthcare. And sort of dismantling capitalism along the way, because those sort of guarantees are to some extent at odd with odds with capitalism. You could argue that it's possible in some sort of social democracy to have both. I'm not sure that that's true. But, you know, I feel like working towards at the very least, like social democracy is at least putting us in the right place. I guess I'm, what I'm saying is I feel like we're in such a crisis mode in like late capitalism right now that I almost don't feel like I have time to delve into like, what does my personal socialist utopia look like? Um, yeah. And actually I can see why people would think that's like counterproductive. Like, you know, the fact that we are in such a crisis mode is exactly why we have to be deliberative about these things. So I can understand why people don't feel that way, but that's sort of my perspective. Yeah, that's, it's difficult. I think, I think there's a lot of value in just the, the process of having these conversations to talking through definitions, uh, mostly because I think being able to identify when there's a system at play that's causing issues, like that mm-hmm. kind of mental exercise is really helpful. So like moving from, you know, this person 
made bad choices in their own life and that's why they don't have their their basic needs aren't being met being able to move from that which is how a lot of people start out approaching politics i think and then moving from like oh shit there's this whole giant system there's a whole apparatus behind the problems that this individual's having and a lot of other people are having the same problems mm -hmm. and i think that's part of the benefit of if even just like working through different definitions of like what socialism is and where we're trying to go with things because that's a really big shift i think like but if i were if i were pushed to say like what is the core of socialism like from my point of view I would say, you know, it's that we should all have access to the resources that we're able to produce as humans, right? Mm -hmm. um, all of these very valuable, desirable, necessary things um, should be things that everybody get gets to benefit from. Um, because if we can, uh, you know, so socialists believe that if we can provide these things for people, not providing them for them is madness yeah. and cruel and unnecessary. And I think also... The other part of that is that who controls, right? Whoever controls these things and, and amasses capital um, has control over those other people's lives. And so not only does distributing these resources, not only is it more fair and just and sane, but it also is to some degree liberatory right? Because when people have their necessities covered, they can take part, uh, not only when they have their necessities covered, but when they are sharing in the resources of a populace, they gain agency over the creation of the world. And um, as humans, we deserve that. So there's these like, there's this component that's sort of about like necessities. And then there's also a component that's about something really incredibly beautiful, which is like, what role we want to give everyone the chance to play in the creation of the human world. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I just want to say, I want to echo that. I think it's really powerful, this synthesis kind of, of a critique of economic inequality and of political inequality at the same time mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and kind of recognizing that those aren't separate problems. Mm. Right. Yeah. But this was a very thought provoking conversation. So thanks for chatting with us and, and bringing it up. Well, thank yeah, you thank so much you so for uh, inviting me. Yeah, of course. Have a great day. You too. Thanks. So this is, a, I think, a good segue into a question that uh, Kenzo, whom we mentioned earlier, asked us on Twitter, which is, how did each of you arrive at socialism? And how would you describe your socialist politics, e.g. Trot, Maoist, Sochdem, etc.? Ooh. All right. Yeah, it was... I don't know. I went from conservative to fiscal conservative, social democrat to democrat to socialist when I went to college. And it was my then boyfriend, now husband, who kind of taught me that the things like that my ideals were socialism. Like there was a mm -hmm. political ideology that aligned with my personal ideals. And um, at that point, it just I had to I had to overcome the red scare bullshit in order to, you know, realize that I was like, okay, yeah, this is something I really believe in. Like this is this is a functional political ideology. I also am not a very big theory person. I'm all about like, yeah, this is socialism. This is what, you know, this is how we can get to equality. I don't know. I'm more interested in the praxis and like policy changes than in the theory, but I took a 
quiz online recently and it said I'm a Maoist. So <laughs> I got that result too. Hey. Oh, I took that too. Yeah. They put me at a democratic socialist, which okay. is maybe less specific than Kenzo was asking, but I think I was <laughs> I actually was asked this by a student the other day too. It was like he was like, How would you describe your political philosophy? And I was like, Well, honestly, like democratic socialist or socialist feminist, like those are those are sort mm-hmm. of the the boxes that I w- would say that I I fall under. I haven't ever read anything by like a single author where I am like ah yes I agree with this to such an extent that I am willing to label myself you know a Stalinist or whatever, um, which I am not. Just for the record, guys. And I I think I got here. I want to sort of echo what what Lindsay said in terms of like the the sort of values thing. Like I, from like a very young age, have been really really interested in politics. I've mentioned before, and I'll say again, there was a a very inappropriate George Bush costume that I donned at in seventh grade because I was like Halloween is the time for me to make a political anti war statement. Um, Perfect. Yeah, living my life out loud. Um, <laughs> But yeah, so I think like inequality is always like on a fundamental level been something that has been really galling to me. And I I came to socialism sort of from like a racial justice lens, because that was that was the the framework in which I was thinking the most sort of from the background that I was, you know, I grew up in sort of a very affluent part of the South and didn't. I mean, definitely had like appreciated class differences, but the what was most obvious to me was was racism. And so sort of by thinking through the history of racism in our in our country and thinking sort of critically about what systems reinforce white hegemony writ large. I just came closer and closer to socialism and and a lot of the people that I really respected that I was reading and listening to, you know, like I went to a hear Cornell West talk at one point and was like, this guy's a socialist, like, maybe I'm a socialist too. And yeah, that's just kind of ended up here by accident. I'm not sure that my views have like changed much since before I considered myself a socialist. I now am very explicit in like a problem happens in my life and I'm like, well, this wouldn't happen without capitalism. And like, that's the solution that I have in my head. I'm like, well, just, mm-hmm. just socialism and that'll fix everything, which is not like a practical way to live your life. But uh, yeah, that's where I'm at. Yeah. I think weirdly enough, I got to, I got here because it was like, I was just constantly asking questions. Like, I spent so many years just wondering how things work and how the world works and like, how do I know what the truth is and what do I believe? And, you know, I was constantly driven crazy by the fact that things seemed very contradictory. You know, I try to answer a question that I had about how the world worked and there were a million different answers. And I would try to like, my brain was like Venn diagrams on Venn diagrams on Venn diagrams. And I'm like, well, maybe if, you know, they all overlap in one place, like I can figure out you know, (laughs) what, what the fuck existence is, you know? And I feel like I spent so much time just being ready to believe nothing at all and being like very unfinished because I'm a frere head and he talks about being an unfinished person. And I feel like um, I've always been very ready to be an unfinished person and to be, you know, not have answers for my questions. And it drives me crazy, but 
I feel that that has what is what has led me here. And I also feel like that's why now as an older person, I feel confident, more confident about my beliefs because I feel like I've really allowed myself to be very open and explore lots of different kinds of ideas. And this is where that has led me. That doesn't answer anything about my socialist tendency, (laughs) except for um, very, very, very dedicated to the the dialectic. (laughs) Yeah, for me, it was just kind of, uh, I kept wandering leftwards until I looked up and was like, oh, wow, I'm really far from home. I guess I live here now. And that's like, <laughs> I love that. Kind of how yeah. I would describe my, my political process. Um, but I was like, oh, you know what? This is actually a really nice place to live. Like, I, I like this. Um, and so I kind of came at it that way. Um, nice. Yeah, right. Like the, the views are great. Cost of living is really nice. People are so nice. So it was sort of a happy <laughs> surprise. And I didn't miss home that much, it turns out. Um, <laughs> so that's kind of what my process was like. And sort of like Kellen said earlier, there's just been so much else to work on and think about. And many, many mansplaining dudes are already thinking about the various ways that mm-hmm. people can subdivide themselves and what that means about them and I don't think I need to spend a lot of time on that personally Um, (laughs) (laughs) other people have have already got that but I did also get malice in in the test which is why why I don't know why what like what does it mean I don't (laughs) I don't know do you know what answers of yours might have led to the see this is my personality at work again I'm like I need the analytics (laughs) for this I need (laughs) What if, wouldn't it be so fucked up if it was just random? (laughs) (laughs) Like, it doesn't consider your answers at all. No, it just gives you a random one. (laughs) That that sounds like a great metaphor for my entire life. (laughs) Like, you're trying to figure everything out. I think we have time for, like, to answer one last question from Twitter, which comes from Ben. He says, long time, first time. He says, one of my parents is wealthy, and I stand to gain a lot personally in the capitalist system we operate under. How should I use my privilege to help my comrades? How can I effectively be a class trader when I'm working against my own personal gain? He also says, love the show. Um, In the future, any men writing in to ask a question should finish with a compliment. Just going to throw that out there. Um, Mm -hmm. I would like to maybe broaden this question, not just to apply to Ben, but I think his last question, how should I use my privilege to help my comrades is a really good one and maybe a good way to end the show today. That's a great question. Yeah. First of all, this is a really good time to mention that we have a Patreon page. (laughs) Yes. Please, um, please transfer your entire the entirety of your inherited wealth to a podcast called Season of the Bitch. <laughs> that is the first step. <laughs> oh my gosh, y'all. We're going to open a dog shelter with it. Oh, I wish. <laughs> I think this is a good good question for us to think about, partly because we, for example, are all of us on the show right now are white women and cisgendered white women which is you know comes with a lot of privileges being again both both white and cisgendered i know for me i'm also coming from like a class position that would be upper middle or upper class i guess and that this has been sort of one of the questions that i like i've thought a lot about just on a personal level i know that 
I'm aware, I guess, that like I have support networks or sort of safety nets is a better way of putting it to fall back on that a lot of my comrades don't. You know, like if something really terrible were to happen to me and I needed, you know, medical care that cost me more than I could personally afford, that I have, you know, a mom who would be able to help me out. And that's not something that everybody has, just as like as an example. And so one thing that's important to do is like, you know, to think about what are some things that... I know, you know, maybe it would be a sacrifice for me personally to, like, spend money on this thing. But, like, somebody has to do it. And, like, it's probably better me than, like, X, Y, Z or whatever. Um, you know, if it's, like, mm-hmm. you know, we can't be reimbursed or you you can't be reimbursed for this thing for your chapter right away. So somebody needs to, like, take a hit for a month, like, you know, springing for whatever it is. Like, if you're able to – if you're not living paycheck to paycheck – then like you can be the person that waits for the reimbursement. Something as simple as that can be hugely helpful and effective. Um, And not waiting for somebody else to say, I can't afford this. Like, can somebody else do it? Just stepping in and doing it. I also think that like doing what we were talking about earlier, like being, just being there, especially as if if you are sort of on these axes of oppression at a more privileged point, like being a body, where bodies are needed, like putting yourself Mm -hmm. in a position to take on some of the more stressful um, acts of organizing or protesting or whatever, that knowing that like cops might be nicer to you if you're white, like putting yourself literally between like cops and people of color at a rally, positioning Mm -hmm. yourself on the outside rather than on the inside of, you know, a circle at a press conference, stuff like that, I think can be really helpful. I also Uh think talking to other wealthy people, because, you know, if one of your parents is wealthy, and you have access to those communities, you need to be talking to them, you need to be a visible and out socialist in a position of privilege with money. Because I think that helps broaden our communities and our, our reach. You know, we spend a lot of time in rooms talking to other people who already think like we do. And I think that's using that position to talk to people who may not already agree with you politically, but just so you can start those conversations and get them thinking about how, you know, they could participate in stuff like that could be really powerful. For sure. I'm usually in, in these, in the spaces that I tend to operate in, which is like kind of intellectual and urban I I tend to be like one of the resident like grew up poor people like I tend to be kind of maybe one of the few people in the room that really had that experience like in a significant way and this is a really difficult question to answer because obviously you're you're as one person your inherited wealth is not going to solve poverty um right and we all know that right all the all these little things we do are just a drop in the bucket but i guess one thing i would say is for people who are poor money is like very sensitive it's emotional and i think this is something i recognize is very hard for people who didn't worry about it as much to understand because i you know i've had conversations with people who grew up wealthy about this about how for them like money is just it's not very it's not sensitive in the same way. It's not emotional. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, you know, a tool that you have that you use. You don't get emotional about a hammer, right? <laughs> but so I guess what I would say is just be generous and people might be weird about it, but that doesn't mean you shouldn't do it. I think it can be little things sometimes too. Like 
paying for things, right? And refusing to let people pay you back. And they might try, like people that you know have less money, right? Um, because once again, it's emotional. It's awkward. People feel, we, we tend to feel like ashamed of not having money, mm-hmm. which is unfair, but it's just how it is. Mm-hmm. And and then I would say being creative, like create, maybe create like an emergency fund for your chapter and encourage everybody who has enough money to put into it. But, you know, put more yourself if you know that you have more money and figure out how you're going to earmark it and figure out how you're going to like use it to help people in need in your chapter. That's a great idea. Um, Things like that. It, it doesn't all have to be on you, but you can sort of spearhead those things, you know? Mm-hmm. That was kind of rambly. I'm no, sorry. No, not at all. No, no, sorry. No, sorry. Also, think, even yeah, if you had, like, no, that was beautiful, Ambria. Mm-hmm. Oh, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> I am beautiful, no matter how much I talk. <laughs> yeah, I don't think that, I mean, in a lot of ways you can't renounce privilege. Like I can't, like I can't not have white privilege. I can't mm-hmm. not have cis privilege, but like recognizing those, recognizing the ways in which they have benefited me and then mm-hmm. working to put other people in a similar place through the exercise of my privilege or the denial of it, I guess. I mean, not denial, but like refusing to accept benefits because of that privilege are ways that you can you know, be a person with privilege and also not be a traitor to your comrades. About the whole, like, money being emotional thing, I did not grow up poor. Like, my family was comfortably middle class, not, like, upper middle class or anything, but we were comfortable. Like, my mom was able to stay at home and homeschool my siblings and I. Um, You know, I didn't have two working parents most of the time when I was growing up. But I was raised with messages that, poverty is something to be ashamed of and not I wasn't explicitly told that my parents you know did donate to charities they you know helped out families who were poor but I did get the message that if you're poor it's because of something that you did and so having been poor since I moved out of my parents house I've been like I've I've had a lot of anxiety about it I've been I wouldn't say I've been ashamed of it I um Honestly, like when my friends are like, you know, hey, do y'all want to go out tonight? You know, we're thinking about going to this fancy place after we get dinner at this fancy place. I'm like, I'm poor. Like, I can't do that. Like, I just explicitly say I'm poor. It's not something I can do. And so I'm not ashamed of it, but it hasn't negated any of the uh, the anxiety of it. Just it is it is a very emotional thing. Um, And so I think that I think opening yourself up, if you have more money than you need, opening yourself up so that people can come to you when they're going to have a hard time making rent is, you know, is a big thing, uh, either for a loan or just, you know, a couple hundred bucks to to buffer them until their next payday. I think that's really important. I don't think that there's anything wrong with having enough money that you're not anxious about where your rent or your mortgage payment's going to come from or cutting back on groceries this week because you really can't afford it. I I think that it's that kind of financial well-being is what I hope for for every single person. And so I can't begrudge the people who have that right now. But recognizing that that's not the case for everyone is significant and helping other people where you can have that sense of well-being, that sense of financial well-being, I think it's pretty important if you do have more money than you need. Mm-hmm. For sure. All right. Well, I think that's going to be our show for this week. 
This was really fun. It was great to talk to everyone. I don't know. How are you all feeling? How did you enjoy the the call-in show? It was fun. Yeah, I liked it. Fun as hell. (laughs) That's awesome. As always, you can follow us on Twitter at Season of the Bee. We're also on the old Facebook and Instagram. Our website is seasonofthebee.com. We got some sweet merch up right there now, and we should be putting some more up soon. Listen, rate, review on iTunes, and most importantly, redistribute those funds, slide some money our way on Patreon so we can keep bringing you progressively hotter takes. (laughs) 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 All right, bye. 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 Love you. Bye. Love you. Bye. Love you. Bye. Bye.